Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, founder of Long in the Tooth Podcast. Most dentists fail to plan ahead for the sale of their practice, which costs them hundreds of thousands of dollars and burdens the ones they love with uncertainty about the future. So every Friday on Long in the Tooth, we share non-clinical insights from dental industry experts to help practice owners prepare for the sale of their practice today so they maximize profitability and peace of mind in the future. For all the hard work you put into building a practice, we believe that you, your family, and your staff deserve to transition after the sale into an even richer and more rewarding season of life. Hi, thank you for joining us. Marie Chatterley here. I have Dr. Lori Kemet with me. We're discussing some of the pros and cons or differences between working with a DSO or independent buyer. And Lori, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So one of the things we haven't touched base on just yet is some differences and I think this is important for our young providers to hear as far as they'll be working for a number of these groups, not as an owner, so not selling back as an owner, but just as a general associate, and what these differences are between not just compensation, but things to look for in their contracts, as well as what this looks like when they even exit to go to an independent practice. And so the first thing let's talk about is this difference of compensation. You touched on this earlier when you were talking about what your work back agreement would be and the varies the variation that comes with the percentage that's paid. Now you have a fee-for-service practice. You're not contracted with any insurance. So for you to be paid between 30 and 40%, I would say is much different than you being paid 30 to 40% um, in an insurance-based practice. So with a lot of our DSOs, uh, most of them have a model that's built off of, you know, taking a lot of insurance plans. When you're approached by very various DSOs, did you talk about compensation with them and if insurance was going to be added to your practice? Oh, yes. It was going to be a, become an insurance-driven practice. That was another thing that was just, I knew the whole makeup of my practice would change. The types of patients coming in through my door would change. Um, you might've heard of the saying, the crown of the year club, you know, patients doing one crown a year. That's not the kind of practice I run and, or ran in the past. And so, you know, customer service and quality care goes out the door and it's all about quantity over quality. And I've even heard from these associate dentists that they are in, comp in com competition with one another to, to outproduce each other. So what's the driver here? Is it quality? No, it's not. It's the bottom dollar for the guy at the top, maybe the woman, but it's mostly guys at the top that are driving the production. And we, Marie, you and I have even heard about situations where a non-dentist is talking to a dentist about why the treatment plan looks the way that it does, right? Why wasn't it a higher treatment plan with more production? So when it's no longer the dentist making the decisions about how the dentistry is done, something has gone terribly wrong. And with having the difference in practicing style, I think that there's part of this that needs to be a part of the conversation, even for our younger practitioners here to say, when they're negotiating working for any type of company, that their compensation is based off of something very specific. So let me just explain the differences. You can be paid based on gross production, which is the total production that you do based on the office's fee schedule. You can be paid off of adjusted net production, which is after insurance write-offs. That's the most common. The second most common is to be paid off of collections. 
So if you bill out $1,000 for a procedure and you are not contracted with insurance, you collect $1,000 for that procedure. So being paid 30%, it's very easy to see what compensation is. If you're contracted with insurance, that $1,000 procedure with one insurance plan could be $800, $600 with another, $700 with a different one. So you have to go through what those adjustments are and then you take your 30%. Those are very different opportunities. So it's not very common, I would say, for our young associates to have a position that's available for them where they can join a practice that's fee for service. I would say that's less common. And more often than not, they're joining a practice that takes a handful of insurance plans, a corporate group DSO or something that takes them. And it's good to know what that is going to look like, uh, whether it be based on collections, based on adjusted net production or um, total production and the percentage accordingly. So for you or a doctor who's looking to sell back, uh, knowing what you're going to be paid on, and I find this is a common thing I will see in a structure with a DSO, for example, is now the selling doctor is being paid on collections. So when you're paid on collections and you're now not an owner and you have no control over the way something is collected, I would argue there's more risk for you there than being paid on adjusted net production. But for you, the change of the makeup is substantial here. So even for you to get paid 40% on adjusted net production, if you're implementing a bunch of insurance plans, is nowhere near what you would have anticipated. Let me, let me, yeah, let me speak to that. I, I just keep thinking about this associate that I had in my practice several years ago, and she was working for, for me part-time, and she was working for another um, dentist DSO model in Denver. And she could come and work in my office for one day and make more than she would make working three days the same week at this other office in Denver. And this dentist doesn't always pay her on time. And I don't think she, I think she was blind to the, the actual calculation. I don't think she actually dove into understanding how she was being paid there. It was just all a big mystery. And so, yes, I, I have heard and, and very real examples. Here's a really specific example. Um, associate working in a DSO office is paid on net production and um, let's say collections with deductions. So there's always a cost to doing business. Let's use Invisalign as an example. The DSO was paying this associate a lower percentage than what she was supposed to get because they were not taking into consideration the huge savings they were making on Invisalign because they were getting a 40% savings because they had so many cases going through their all their offices she was actually getting a deduction that was higher than what she was supposed to. So she was netting less than what she should have been. And so they were not honest and forthcoming and showing her the calculations that were true and correct. Yeah. I want to touch on that more in more detail because I think this is pretty important for our young doctors to hear. Uh, if you're looking at any type of an associate contract, please, one, hire somebody who works in this industry. Hire an attorney who does practice transitions to review the contract on your behalf. And there's two things you can add to that contract that would be very protective of you. Because my probably one of my top complaints for associates who are transitioning, I will hear, I don't know if I was really paid what I should have been paid. There was no way for me to actually see what my production was or to verify my production. There was no way for me to verify if, you know, if lab fees were deducted, there was no way to verify what those lab fees really were. I just got a statement and I just had to believe that all of it was correct. And, you know, we want to side with the fact that everybody is forthcoming and honest and correct in what they're doing. But as an associate, you should have within your contract the ability to 
confirmed production, which means you have access to production reports. So that in and of itself, if you don't remember anything about associate contracts, to discuss that with your attorney, making sure that you have access to production reports. And if your compensation is after lab fees, so adjusting lab fees off, that you should have access to all of the lab invoices. So those two things are something that you can look at ahead of time in your contract so that you're protective along the way. Because the last thing you want is to be wrapping up your associate job with somebody and thinking, gosh, I'm leaving, but I have no idea if I was paid fairly. In my mind, I should have been paid an extra 5,000 that I wasn't or 10,000 that I wasn't, but I have no way to verify it. And you as an associate, you're always in a position where you don't have as much money as the person that you worked for, period. So the thought of you hiring an attorney <laughs> to make all this right, I, I mean, you're probably not going to do that. It's super expensive to get an attorney involved to correct $5,000 for you. Not to mention that the DSO may have an attorney on staff. Because yeah, they do. Because they've been in so many lawsuits, right? So I know about that, that side of things too. <laughs> yeah, I think that having, just thinking about things ahead of time and looking at the opportunities. And I will have to say not all DSOs are the same. I think we're kind of highlighting some of the negatives here. We do have a number of DSOs that I would say are really great for our doctors to work for that have been really good sources of education for them even so that they're better prepared when they're ready to have ownership, make a different transition. And a lot of them, we do have some that I would say are really good about showing production and making sure that everything is um, just forthcoming. But what we're starting to see, especially in the last five years, and I really haven't seen this before now, is we have a bunch of these invisible DSOs. And I like that word because you don't know that they're a DSO. It's somebody that owns three, five, 20 practices. It's not a big name. It's none of our big, you know, corporate groups that we're used to seeing because they're not on a big sign somewhere. So they own a bunch of practices. The practice, all, they all look like independent practices. They kind of operate as though they are. And you're working for these groups that are smaller, which also means they don't have all these structures in place often. So they're building them. And I have to give credit to a few of them because some I've been very impressed with. They have managed their associates really well. They have good reputation. They are groups that, you know, own maybe that five to 20 range of practices. And I get good feedback from either the people that sell to them or the doctors that work for them. But then we have a handful of others that I would argue are a mess. And the systems and protocols are not in place yet. They're just starting to formalize what this looks like to be a corporate group that owns dental practices. And the mistakes they're making, whether they be intentional or not, I'm not gonna go there, but uh, when I have a doctor working for them as an associate or a selling doctor working back, I do feel like there's more need for scrutiny on the process so that there's more protection for them. And the last thing we want is what you're describing, which is a young associate who just has no idea, has no idea what their production was and if they were paid fairly and they don't have the money to figure it out, to correct it. Yeah, these, I mean, we all know this. When we come out of dental school, we don't know how to run a business. So we don't know how to analyze the numbers. And it's so easy for a DSO owner or owners to pull the wool over their associates' eyes. So yeah, you just, you just have to be educated in all aspects of dentistry. You, you, you really do not need to start getting a sense of how does the business run? You know, I, I would hope that some of the people listening today 
really want to own their own practices and their goal is to just be an associate for a part for part of their career, the, the maybe the beginning of their career in a DSO or in a private practice, and then eventually own their own. So why not start to learn and educate yourself in the business and understanding overhead and the expenses and um and what is an what is a proper or appropriate expense category for dentistry for a lab expense, for instance? I know all of that. I watch my numbers closely, and you know the sky's the limit in a private practice, and especially in a fee for service practice like mine. You know, you bring up a good point that I want to emphasize here because I do feel that being an independent practitioner doesn't have to be overwhelming or stressful. There are so many benefits to owning your own practice and practicing as an independent provider and being able to have a model like you have, such as a fee-for-service practice, where, I mean, you work three days a week, which is phenomenal. I mean, I, I yeah. work five plus days a week. Remember, Marie, it's two now. <laughs> I'm working two days now. Yeah, and so being able to have that luxury of time even is phenomenal. And when you are fee-for-service, I would have to say my clients that don't take insurance are a little bit less stressed. So uh, they don't feel as stressed out if a hygienist can't come in that week, they can take more time off, they can go on a vacation for you know a week and a half, they don't feel all this pressure that they needed that production to pay all of their bills. So it is a more relaxed type of a opportunity, but it requires education. So there's a lot of education that went into being a phenomenal clinical dentist. And we forget that the second component of what we're doing here is we're running a small business and being an expert at running a small business takes some time and education. Once you have made the effort to be educated, then it's not hard to look at your numbers. It's it's not hard to then go and look at stuff because you've taken the time to know what you're looking for. So being able to say, gosh, hmm, uh, my supply is typically around 6%. And for some reason this year, they were 10%. That doesn't seem right. Let's look at what's happening there. So I could be back within a normal range of maybe 6 to 7% or labs, whatever it may be. And so I do think that I like the message you're offering, which is practicing as an independent provider is very rewarding. There are so many blessings and benefits that you have. And the, I think the reason why a lot of people choose to join with a DSO, I don't actually believe they're all money driven. I don't think that all of my clients that want to join a DSO, it has to do with them just paying this huge price. I think uh, some of it is actually to relieve stress, to relieve management responsibility, whatever that may be. And I do still think that there is a, a need for that. So for some of my clients, it really is the best avenue. But I would say I have other clients that are somewhere in the middle and that maybe just taking the time here as a young provider while you're deciding what to do with your career to become educated on being savvy with business ownership so that when hiccups come along the way, whatever they may be, having a, somebody go on maternity leave, um, you know, having somebody embezzle, you know, big stuff happens in your career. Mm -hmm. And being able to identify and manage that in a way that you can still feel the rewards as being rewards and not, um, yeah, and, and not overly stressed from it. So I would love for you to touch on what it's been like for you being an independent practitioner, what it's been like for you owning this practice. Yeah. So I opened it in 1993 and I'm transitioning now in 2022 and, um, it, it enabled me to uh, save money, invest in, in uh, real estate. I've done, together with my husband, we've built sort of a, um, a retirement that's based on real estate. But I want to just turn back. I mean, that, that, that's something that anybody can do. 
but I, I really want to emphasize how important it is as a private practice to really understand your business and look at your numbers every single month because most dentists look at their numbers between January 1st and April 15th and they're talking to their CPA and they're like, oh, shoot, I was a little high in that category or darn it, why did I spend so much on a dental equipment? I really shouldn't have bought that piece of equipment. Um, everything has to happen at the right time. And so by analyzing your numbers and your expense categories and your net profit every single month, you can know where am I spending too much money? And by the way, most of us spend too much money in staff. And most of us are spending too much money in staff because we're insurance driven and we're having to have two employees or three employees submit insurance claims. So the fee for service model really does work. I have one employee that submits insurance claims on a part-time basis. I only have two dental assistants and one hygienist. And, you know, um, we've had years, and I, I'm not trying to, um, to gloat, but we've had years where we've gone over $2 million in production with an overhead of 50%. It is possible. It is totally possible in a fee-for-service model. Thank you so much for sharing that, because I feel that sometimes there's a fear of making a transition and going fee-for-service if you've been on insurance, but there is a huge difference. And I think that I actually believe anyone can make that transition if you're strategic about it and plan it out, but it does offer a completely different picture as to what you're looking at as far as your total production you're able to do and what the overhead looks like. It's completely different. My average office that takes insurance, I would say the average overhead is still around 65%, maybe even high as 70 in some cases. Uh, Fee-for-service practices, the overhead is typically around 50 to 55%. Yeah. And the, the, again, just back to the staff overhead, I see practices that are over 30% with staff overhead and I float right around 14 to 15%. So right there, if you just take that percentage, that difference in percentage, call it 15% and multiply that times your gross collection, or excuse me, your net collections per month, that's, that's money going right into your pocket right? That's why we have to think. We have to look at our net, net income and think, how can I increase that mm -hmm. um, without there being a lot of um, expense? Um, you know, you, everything has to be with the right vision. So taking care of your employees, taking care of your patients and not, and always giving your patients options for treatment. It's like being an ethical dentist and still making a nice income for yourself and your family. Yes. Yeah. And I, I appreciate your insight because I do feel like there is such a room for our independent practitioners to be successful now. We've had more of my clients personally have transitioned their insurance participation in the last three years than ever in my career, and they've done it successfully, and they've been able to make a transition where they are predominantly more fee-for-service. And the one feedback I've received is, this is so much less stressful, and I feel like I can give the raises I have wanted to give over the years, and now I can actually afford it, <laughs> which in our climate currently right now is imperative. Uh, we are in Colorado, but I think we're experiencing this nationwide where there's staff shortages everywhere, and so they're demanding a higher price. And just that little change um, in a practice offers huge benefits that just allow you to reward the people that you love the way you want to and continue to practice the way you feel comfortable practicing regardless. Um, yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Kemet, for joining us. I appreciate all of your insight about the differences in transitions and what you've experienced in a variety of different capacities with the transition with DSOs, with independent buyers. I'm so impressed with you, the business that you've created, and 
what, what a treat it was to watch you transition with someone in mind that would be such a phenomenal candidate to carry on the legacy that you've created. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking with you and helping others that are listening. 